I'm Tina. And this is Obsessed with the Best. Hi, Tina. How are you? Hi, Alex. I'm so good. Happy happy Saturday. It's the weekend. Thank you. I am so pumped about our special guest today. Our very first special guest on Obsessed with the Best. Our first time ever having a special guest. I cannot wait. We have Miss Shakina Nafak today, who is so incredible. She's done so many things. I mean, actress, singer, writer, producer. It's Unbelievable. Also, fun fact, the first time you and I ever worked together in person yes. was on a shoot for Playbill that I was producing like alongside with Shakina. And we were in the basement of 54 Below and I had you on as a stylist. Oh it was such a fun shoot. Oh my God. I had the best time. I had the best time. I was just starting my makeup artist career. And so you put so much faith in me and I was like, okay, I'm just going to make this work. Um, and then, you know, I got to work with Shakina and this wonderful, fabulous team. And everyone was so lovely and kind. And it was just so fun. I had the best day. It truly was the best day. Okay. So as I mentioned, this woman is so special and has done so many things. It would be impossible to list them all, but I'm going to hit you with a few. So (laughs) she most recently starred in NBC's Connecting, making her the first transgender person to be cast as a series regular on a network sitcom. She can also be seen in Amazon's Transparent in the musical finale, which she helped write and produce, on the Hulu original comedy Difficult People, for which she was also a writing consultant, as well as in Jessica Jones on Netflix and The Detour on TBS. She is also the founding artistic director of the Musical Theater Factory in New York City, where she has developed hundreds of new musicals, including the Pulitzer Prize-winning A Strange Loop by Michael R. Jackson. Shakina attended UC Santa Cruz, where she received a BA in Community Studies with a minor in Theater Arts, as well as a graduate certificate in Theater Arts. She went on to pursue an MFA in Experimental Choreography and a PhD in Critical Dance Studies at UC Riverside. Her recognitions include the Lilly Award for Working Miracles and the Theater Resources Unlimited Humanitarian Award, and she is also a two-time Drama League Fellow and two-time Out 100 honoree. Please welcome the ultimate New York City multi-hyphenate, Shakina Nafak. Hey. Woo! Yay! Oh my god, that list. I have goosebumps hearing all of those things. Can you even? And that's the abridged version, if you can even believe it. That's the 200-word bio. Yeah, that's. But I just want to say that actually the photo that we took, I heard my introduction, and the photo that you uh, helped style me for, Tina, that we took at 54 Below for Playbill is still one of the profile photos that I use the most on my social media platforms. And when I get like media requests for a photo, it's been like doctored with a bunch of different backgrounds to look like it's a different photo, but it's always this like iconic photo of me (laughs) laughing behind the bar at 54 Below. And it's one of my faves. Oh, it is one of my favorite pictures. It is so awesome that's so cool to know I love that it's yeah. so cool Yay. every time I see it I'm so happy you're just so joyful oh, in yeah. it we're gonna have to repost that we okay. should definitely repost that yes for sure Shakina I want to start from the very beginning where it's did you grow up a very good place to start where <laughs> did you grow up and how did you find yourself coming to New York I, I grew up in 
Orange County, California uh, in the 90s, where it was like very conservative um, and like pretty homophobic. And like I, I would call, say it was transphobic, too, but like people didn't even know what trans was. So they like couldn't even articulate the fear. But um, it was like a really dry and terrifying place to grow up a queer kid, except for the fact that I lived in Laguna Beach, which was this like queer artist enclave in the middle of this like conservative landscape. So I was really blessed to grow up, first of all, by the water, because I'm like a beach girl and that's just in my spirit. But second of all, in the community that had like an actual, like a deep um, queer, I'll say mostly gay tradition and an art scene. Um, and it was like a, a small town vibe in the sort of midst of the suburbs. So I was able to like, you know, get glimpses of the life that I would one day live or that I wanted to live. But, uh, but for the most part, it was like, help me get out of here. And I dropped out of a bunch of high schools and I was like a total riot girl, like starting protests at, at my high schools for gay rights and stuff like that. And then um, I finally, I made it to UC Santa Cruz, which really saved my life. That's where I learned about what transgender was and how I could express myself and, and really got steeped in like the academic uh, aspect of social change and learned how to be a community organizer. And then, um, and then after that, you know, I had, I had sort of like come out as trans at college, but I still didn't see a pathway to becoming the, the woman that I knew I wanted to be. And so I went inward instead and I started focusing on like how to develop a, a feminist and feminine sense of self uh, that seemed to be really rooted in like a spiritual practice and creative practice. And that's where I found this avant-garde dance form called Buto. And it's a Japanese dance form, but I studied it with a Mexican master. And I was like down in Mexico, um, like studying this avant-garde ritual dance, trying to like burst through my gender and my body. And I was like, this is so wild. Like what is happening here with this like, this like white Jewish queer male bodied trans woman dancing ritual dance in Mexico. And, and I was like, someone should write a book about this. It's like so bizarre. And then of course, no one would write a book about that because I was literally the only one seeing it and experiencing it. So I applied to graduate school for a PhD in dance to, to try and understand what it was that I had gotten myself into. And um, once I got into that program, I realized that I did not want a PhD, nor did I feel like I needed a PhD. But I also, having been like such a, um, such a dropout, <laughs> like earlier in my life, I was like, I finish what I start. And so I like plowed through this program. I stayed there as long as I could and got through it, got that paper and was like, now I'm going to go to New York and reconnect with my roots in the theater and like be the person I always wanted to find. Wow. That is such an incredible journey. And it's so interesting because I've known you for years now, but when I first met you, how I kind of met you during those early years was I remember you taught an impromptu buto class at the old musical theater factory, right as it was just kind of starting. And that that's, that's, right. that's I, I associate you so much with that movement because it's you were very much still experimenting with it when I first met you. Yeah, you know, I think I'm still, it's still so in me. It's like when you hear like um, yoga people be like, the real yoga happens off the mat, you know? For me, like yes. Bhutto is not about like going to some other country to dance in the wilderness. It's like how I choose to live my life every day, embracing all of my contradictions and trying to create a meaningful offering through the energies that I'm integrating around me and trying to sort of create a, a lived alchemy, you know? And that's what I learned from Diego Pinon, who's the founder of Body Ritual Movement. And um, yeah, I used to do 
um, an open buto class every year on my birthday and just to invite anyone who wanted to come. Uh, I haven't done that in a while, but I think like when we get out of this pandemic life, I'm going to return to holding that space. And I also think it's, it's an incredible expressive art form that holds a lot of tools for actors and singers that you wouldn't, you wouldn't think that you could like access all this deep emotional territory through you know, experimental dance, but actually when you bring a song or a monologue or text to the explorations of Buto, you can really unlock whole new landscape. So I'm still really into it. And I teach it like every once in a while at, you know, I did a class at, at NYU. Uh, I taught uh, like Buto for the actor and I teach at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center every year, like little workshops yes. here and there. So it's a part of what I bring, but I don't like, that's not what I'm broadcasting all the time. Now I'm much more like I'm a TV star. <laughs> Well, <laughs> absolutely. And you are a TV star because I have, you are. <laughs> I mean, totally. I have a question about when you first got to New York. So you've just finished your, your degree and you, you get to New York. <laughs> Alex and I have talked a lot on the podcast about all of our random jobs that we've had on the side to like survive and get through. And I'm so curious, what was your experience like when you first got to New York? Were you auditioning every day? Were you focusing on theater? Were you working a million side jobs? What was that? What was that time like for you? Yeah, you know, when I got to New York, I still never thought I would be an actress. I, I I was I had not transitioned yet. I was presenting to the world male, even though I had identified as trans for like a decade. And I was sort of out to my friends and family about that journey, but didn't know where it was going to take me. So I was focusing on becoming a director. Uh, and that's where I thought like my energies would lie. And I didn't even I wouldn't even speak the dream of wanting to be an actress. Like I would go to see shows and I would like I would feel the sensation of like jealousy and excitement over watching the people on stage. But it was so it, I had I had made it so impossible to myself that I didn't even dare to articulate that that's where I wanted to be. I was just like, oh, I guess I'll always sort of feel nostalgic for that, you know? And I was really fortunate that I had this fellowship from the Drama League, uh, which is really what brought me out to New York. They they took a gamble on me. They actually told me I was their wild card candidate. And I got this new musical directing fellowship, which sent me to Barrington Stage Company for a summer. And that's up in the Berkshires. And I worked underneath Bill Finn, who had been like an icon and a role model of mine. He wrote the 25th Annual Putnam Cummings Spelling Bee and Falsettos, amongst other things. So I was, I was sort of apprenticing beneath him and producing and learning about directing at this theater company. And then I moved to New York and it was so like Annie. It was like three bucks, two bags, one me. Like I literally hitched <laughs> yeah. a ride from the theater company to New York City and was like, here I am. I'm going to figure it out. And the jobs that I did were like, I, I got like assisting jobs for you know, readings and workshops of new musicals, mostly unpaid stuff where I would just be in the room and getting to like soak up how people were directing. And of course, you learn a ton about acting from watching that unfold as well. But actually, Barrington Stage invited me back to to stay on as from from my fellowship to associate producer. And so I had this sort of like part time job that kept me in the Berkshires a few months of the year, but then kept like, you know, gave me little projects here and there throughout the, the rest of the season. And um, and I didn't like want to be a producer, you know, I was like, I'm a director. Meanwhile, what I wanted to be was an actress. And um, <laughs> so like my second year back at Barrington, I was like, I'm only going to come back if you let me direct in the season. And the third year at Barrington, I was like, I will come back, but I'm going to be transitioning. So either you get the whole package or you don't get any of it. And, and sort of like fortuitously, the show that they were doing that season was Southern Comfort by Julianne McDavis and Dan Collins, which is a musical based off a documentary about a trans community in Atlanta. And so 
it was like the first trans musical. And of course, no one was trans in the show yeah. and um, or on the creative team. But uh, and I and I was just kind of like coming out in that moment. But that's where I was like, someone's got to be doing this. Like, like, you know, we can't just be telling these stories without our people in it. And yeah, I think that's when I was like, I'm going to go full forward. I'm going to like transition. I'm going to create a show about my decision to transition. I'm going to get back on stage and tell people my story. And I'm going to start a theater company. It all happened like at once. Wow. Wow. You, when you decide to do something, you just do it, which I've always <laughs> been incredibly inspired by. And I want to talk a little bit about you always have a lot of things going at once. It feels like you're always working on multiple projects at one time. How are you organizing your time between all of your curiosities, all of your artistic endeavors? And do, can you take us through a little bit about what a day in your life is like right now? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I sort of feel like it's like when you are prepping a big meal and you sort of know like okay this needs to be in the oven for this long but this needs to be on the stove for that long and if I'm gonna start cooking now I have to prep this then and um and so I think about like you know all the creative work that I'm trying to bring out into the world is this like delicious feast that I want to share with people but everything takes its own amount of time and and its own temperature and and its own ingredients and so uh, a lot of it is improvisational because there are no recipes for that sort of thing and I have to kind of go with my gut and say like all right I need to focus on this and, and make this the center of my strategy because once this gets out into the world it will create more opportunity meanwhile I'm gonna like put the pieces together for my next couple moves and see what that's gonna be but right now um, you know I'm focused mostly on writing work because it, it's sort of like a limited pilot season what with production still being stunted and, and as a trans woman like I don't get that many pilot auditions to begin with which is unfortunate and we can talk about that later but um so I went from a, an, a, a moment of like a lot of, of creation when I was doing connecting and filming that show from home and recording my play Chambray International Hotel and Butterfly Club from home for Audible to then being like, all right, now I'm writing pitch decks. And um, it's a lot less glamorous and it's really hard because you're pulling ideas, you know, from the ether and trying to make them seem cogent on paper. But, you know, I'm trying to take my time and set reasonable goals for myself, deadlines. Um, and um, one thing I found really helps me is to be working in collaboration. So uh, so sometimes I will, you know, find a way, even if I have to like hire someone to bounce ideas off and help me just like talk through and articulate my ideas because they don't always come out so cleanly, you know, in that first draft. So these days, yeah, I'm, I'm like, trying to focus on my wellness by making time every day for like yoga and exercise and which is you know the first year of quarantine I let that just go and now I'm like okay this it, this needs to be I need to sustain and come out stronger and then also like I am giving myself time actually to cook healthy meals and like take more time in the kitchen and not rush through that process. And then the writing has its own moment. And, you know, I can sort of like leave that there and step away from it and come back to it. But really, I'm just so like eager to get back on set and to be working as an actress again. And so all of my intention is really like placed there. I, I love what you were saying about collaboration and sort of delegating things and hiring out if you need help. Because yeah. I think it's like this thing like this pressure that society puts on women that like you have to do all of it you have to do everything and never ask for right. help and ne that shows weakness and and I love that you're
you're like, no, if I need help, I'm going to bounce ideas off somebody else and I'm going to reach out. And I just, I love that. I love that philosophy and sort of going back to what you were saying about connecting and collaboration and that, that show. Okay. So you sort of achieved the impossible as an actor and booked <laughs> a job on TV in the height of COVID, um, a leading role on an NBC show. Like what, what was that like? How did that audition come to you? What was the audition process like? Um, and then what was it like filming from home? It was, the audition was so funny because originally they sent me a breakdown for a, a different character. And that character, the character of Michelle that was played by Jill Knox Powell had to be, um, they wanted a couple to, to like, so that they could, you know, have the husband and wife actually be like quarantined at home together and not have to worry about, you know, bringing two people in to create a scene. So I was like, look, I could have Daniel, my partner, read with me for this audition, but he's not an actor. He's not going to, like, want to be on this show. And so I asked him, like, do you have anything else that I can audition for? And so they sent me the breakdown for Ellis. That was this, like, sort of on paper kind of manic tomboy sports fanatic. And um, and I was like, oh, this is, like, really outside my wheelhouse. But I can definitely identify with, like, missing out on the like communal ritual of enthusiastic spectatorship because as like a theater maker like and Broadway had been dead for six months at that time like I understood that hunger and so I just sort of like applied that to like if I wore a sports fan how would I feel and and I wore this like sort of ratty wig and and just like a t-shirt and and no makeup and just did this audition holding my phone like making it seem really like shot from home and they loved it I I had to do uh two more screen tests like through zoom and I actually booked the role while I was recording Butterfly Club and had to go into my first table read um, for the for the pilot episode the afternoon after we wrapped the recording of Butterfly Club. Oh so it God. was like two jobs back to back in a time when no one no one was working, including I mean, I was on unemployment, you wow. know. Um, yeah, yeah. So it was not. And then they send us all this equipment. And we we had to basically turn our living room of this studio apartment <laughs> into into a TV set. And Daniel became like a co producer with me on the show. And he was like helping me set up camera and lighting and sound I was doing my own hair and makeup. And it was just wild. Wow. I really want to hear more about the tech setup at home and yes. the shooting from home and the hair yeah. and makeup. And also people have not seen Connecting. It's about this group of friends just navigating 2020 and they're in quarantine and they're communicating by Zoom and cell phone. And so all of the actors actually were shooting it from their homes. That's correct, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Everyone so was shooting from home and we were all on a real Zoom together, but we also had a, like a stacked tripod with two cell phones on it and a computer. So we, every episode, well, sometimes we wouldn't even have the computer. We would just have like multiple phones and iPads, but we had a telephone, a phone that was used as our camera phone. We had a phone that was used as our Zoom phone where we would like sort of be in the on set together and we would see each other. Um, and also the entire production team would be on that Zoom giving us notes about like how to fix our lighting, how to fix the sound. Um, we were wiring our own mic, doing our own makeup as we said. So the makeup designer would be like, oh, add some more concealer here. Like last looks involved getting really close to the camera on a Zoom and getting notes about hair and makeup from people on the other side of the camera. And then we had this other camera that was like our remote for the camera phone and they were like linked through a, a program. And at the same time that we were looking at our, our at this remote that had the picture of our camera, that was being screen shared to the camera directors and put on the Zoom that we were watching. So it was like all happening in space. I don't even know how. But so then we'd have the, the, um, the camera director or the director being like, okay, can you you change the lighting balance can you like bring up the hues can you whatever 
you know, um, change the aperture of your lens, like all these things. And then once we got all seven cameras set, they would call action and we would like, we would get to rehearse the scene in the Zoom so we got to see each other like we were all talking. But once it came time to actually acting, we were acting right to the pinhole camera of the iPhone and hearing each other and sort of relying on the, the comedy that we established once we were connected. But that everything was like looking right into the little camera of the iPhone. And that's what ended up on NBC. Wow, that is a whole other skill set. Exactly. Yeah, so many skill sets. Right, in production, acting class, imagining people that aren't there just relying on sound. That is an unbelievable experience. I yeah. okay, I really do want to ask you about your Halloween look for the Halloween yes. episode. Yeah. Oh very epic. And we need to hear what went into that. Yeah, so okay, I um I mostly had to do my own hair and makeup for the show, but after the first episode, on the last look moment, when I was given like a quick note to like fix a curl in my hair, I ran to the bathroom and I burned myself on a curling iron like mid oh, no. mid shot. Like like get back to camera and oops, I burned my so I told them I was like, look, from now on, you have to send my hair out every weekend and get it reset and then I will maintain it like throughout the shooting days. But but just like for the for the major reset like I can't in the middle of everything so my friend D Tranny Bears incredible uh wig stylist like a non-binary glamazon queen just incredible and they live like maybe 15 blocks north of me so the PA would come and pick up my hair and take it up to them and then bring it back to me later similarly I have a, a makeup designer who I work with often named Judy Chung and she's out in Queens but she's helped me with a lot of different glam looks over the years and even though I was doing my own makeup for the show when they when I read the Halloween episode which said that I was going to appear as Dracula's daughter from the iconic like old school uh, universal horror film. I said like, hey, can we like go all in on this and actually like paint me black and white? Like the idea was that Ellis takes Halloween so seriously and the rest of the friends flake. So I was like, well, if I really take it seriously, I'm, I'm gonna like make myself a silver scream queen. And so I asked them if they could hire the Tranny Bear and Judy Chung to like really make an epic look, like more than I would just do on my own. And so before we could even do that, we had to get COVID tests, of course. My COVID test came back inconclusive for some reason so then I had to go get a double COVID test on the day of the shooting like two back to back to make sure Um, and then they came like in full PPE for two nights in a row and also because it was a night shot and being shot primarily in LA we filmed from about 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. here and so they came over and they painted my whole body white and like created this incredible sort of like you know, black and white drag look for this character. And then I got to have this like meltdown. Meanwhile, between every shot, I was like pouring water on dry ice behind me to get it to foam more. (laughs) I had this zombie that was an electronic zombie that was sort of rigged to when I stepped on a pedal, it would like hydraulically fall into the screen and then back out. And uh, yeah, it was just so chaotic. Actually in the episode, when I have my big monologue and I get mad at all my friends for flaking on me, at the end of the scene, it was like an accident that I stepped on the pedal that brought the zombie in. And there's Stop. this really incredible moment where she falls into the frame and I just like roll my eyes and I say like, not right now, B. And um, that was so funny. Vinny and it was I laughed so, so hard at that moment. I love to know that that was an accident because it was Total gold. accident. Yeah. What? Yeah. Oh. And it was like at four in the morning after I was like totally fried and had done this for two nights in a row. You know, it was just one of those like, like I'm going to say theater magic things. Like even though it's for TV, it's like one of those things that like only happens when you're just pushing through, you know? Wow. And you know, people, 
people so see the end product and they go, oh, what looks so good? And it all ended up so perfectly. Nobody has any idea. It's the middle of the night. You're probably exhausted. You're running all kinds of things in your head. I mean, it's it looks so effortless, but there's so much that goes on behind the scenes. Yeah, literally, like before the action, I would have to like rewire the dummy and do the dry ice and check my looks and like untangle my hair from my costume and fix and block the powder, the, the white makeup. What I love about that episode though, if, if um, you know, listeners of this, of this show will go check out, it's episode seven of Connecting and it's still available on Hulu and Peacock. I start the episode talking to a dear trans friend of mine, D'Lo, who I got to like be on the show as a guest star. And we're sort of talking about like the trials and tribulations of like going through the motions of putting on a full look for a Zoom call to affirm our trans identity. And I'm setting up for the party in my apartment, which I actually had to do, like, cover the walls with all this, like, Halloween decor. And I'm looking like a fucking glam shell, you know, glam shell, bombshell, glam shell. That's what I mean to say. I glam shell. I'm looking like a glam shell. <laughs> and, um, and, then, and then I, you know, next time you see me, I'm in this, like, crazy Halloween look. And then well, because I'm so pissed at my friend for flaking on me, the next time we have our group call, I show up with no hair and makeup. And I'm there with my shaved head and a plain face. And I actually have... A a little bit of like a flirtation with one of the other characters so like in that moment of like pure vulnerability and exposure I also become the subject of the romantic gaze for the camera which is so radical and revolutionary for television especially network television and in that one episode which is what like 22 minutes I have these three iconic looks so I was really proud really proud of that episode I was so proud of that episode I found it so powerful and just the way that the hair and makeup totally tells a story your character arc it was really incredible I I do I feel like every one needs to watch episode seven oh, absolutely. right now. Yes. Hulu and Peacock just catch up. Also just the whole season. I mean, it's 22 minutes long. You can watch. It's, yeah. I mean, it's like a three hour binge it. for the whole thing. And it's so Truly. it's like a really great way to relive 2020 and like process the hard stuff and, and, and laugh through, you know, the hardship. And uh, yeah, I'm super proud of the show. I mean, I wish we had a second season because there's a ton of stuff we could be talking about now. But, you know, it'll always be there as a as a time capsule for what we went through. Yes, exactly. an absolute like exactly. perfect little time capsule because like nobody could, you know, make this shit up. Oh, it happened to 2020. Yeah. Um, right. But right. gosh, you've you've been so like resilient in your career. And it seems like every time you've wanted to do something, you've done it. You defeated all odds and booked this huge show um, on NBC. You've done all these wonderful things in your career has there ever been a point that's been super low for you where you're like you know what I just can't do this I gotta throw in the towel have you had yeah. experienced that <laughs> I mean kind of like every day <laughs> like I mean <laughs> it's you know I'm I'm like so glad that what the world is left with is this idea that I am this like go-getting pioneer breaking down barriers and like inspiring the masses and I that is the energy I want to bring to the world but in order to bring that energy I have to push through all of my own resistances and my self-sabotage and my self-doubt. And um, and it's not easy, especially in this quarantine moment when you don't have the community engagement to sort of uplift you and fill your spirit all the time. You know, I, I've been really lucky because, you know, as I said, I spent a long time really developing my spiritual center before I launched myself fully into this career. And I think that's one of the things that, that has served me so much because when difficult people got canceled and I had been on season two and three and done 16 episodes with them, and it was really a groundbreaking role, you know, for me and the world. And 
I remember getting the email from Julie Klausner and I read it and my, my stomach dropped. But at the same time, immediately, I heard a voice in my head say, it's going to be okay. I heard it immediately. And so I trusted that voice. I made the choice in that moment to trust that voice instead of going on the despair train, you know. And then similarly, when I got the phone call that Connecting got canceled, and they canceled Connecting after four episodes on the air. I mean, there were a lot of things going on in the world that led to that. But our best work was yet to be released. So we learned that, like, all the stuff that we worked so hard for, the episode about George Floyd, the episode about defunding the police, the Halloween episode, those were all going to come out just direct to Peacock instead of being on the air, which was a huge bummer. But when I got that call, again, my stomach dropped. And at the same time, I heard a voice that said, if you can't roll with this, you're in the wrong industry. And I said, you're right. Okay. Like, I'm going to choose that. I'm going to like, just, you know, it's like when you in like those thriller movies, when the train is like rolling down the tracks and like one end is busted and they're going off a cliff and the other end, they just got to like switch this, like the, the track over to save everybody on board. It's like, you have to be able to pull that lever in a moment's notice and switch tracks with your thoughts, with your emotions, you know, in order to avoid disaster and just like get back on a new route. And it's not easy, but it's like, it is a muscle that gets better with, with it gets stronger with practice. I feel like that's one of the most important life lessons in any career that you're in. The ability to shift gears, to pivot. I mean, I feel like that's the biggest thing we've all learned in 2020. I mean, no matter, I mean, I feel like when you're in the entertainment business, you're used to things hitting the fan, we know. But 2020 was a time when no matter what business you were in, things had a huge upheaval. So I feel like it's definitely a lesson that we've all learned this year and are continuing to learn. I've also found that like, and this is just, it's annoying to me, but true that every time I have wanted something and not gotten it, something better and more suited for me has come along, you know, and and I've had to accept the loss and grieve the loss of the thing I wanted. But at the same time, keep an openness. Now I have a little more trust in that process. So it's not as jarring. But literally every time I didn't book the role, I didn't get the job, I didn't, I got ghosted by the guy, whatever, every time, like, it's because the right thing was right behind that. So you know, that's another thing you just got to learn how to have confidence in. Yeah, I really believe that too. And it's, it's a daily practice, though. It's one of the hardest things. It's not just, oh, I learned this. Let's wrap it up in a bow. Check that off. It's no. It is. You continue to learn in different ways every single day. It's a muscle. Like you said, that's a great way to. Exactly. Hey, all you true crime fans. This is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morf. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. All right, switching gears a teeny bit, you are also very much, as we've mentioned a little bit, a social activist. And I have a favorite Gloria Steinem quote where she says, if you want to affect real change, you have to put your body where your beliefs are. And every time I think of that quote, I think of you. Because Mm. if you are passionate about something, you are in the peaceful march. You are at the protest. You are organizing a benefit concert. You are bringing visibility to it on your social media. And I just want to hear where that motivation and that passion comes from in you and a little bit about the issues that you're most passionate about at this moment. 
Sure. I mean, I think what, it comes from a couple places. First of all, like I said, I came out as, as gay really young in a really homophobic and conservative environment. And I knew in my gut that I didn't deserve to be ashamed for who I was. And so I fought back against that to save myself you know, for my own mental health and sanity. And, and so I became a fighter uh, really young, you know, in, in junior high, even, you know, I went from being bullied every day to being the class president. And it was like, because I was like, I will not accept this defeat. So I think that part of that is just like how I grew up. And then also, you know, I think my family is really rooted in, in social justice and labor justice. My aunt took me when I was maybe seven or eight years old, she took me and my older brother out with private Project Angel Food to deliver food to people living at home with uh, advanced HIV AIDS. And, you know, and I, and she took me to Hands Across America, which was this like, you know, rally to end hunger and homelessness. When I was a kid, you know, my mom was a tireless advocate for uh, young people in the criminal justice system. My grandfather, her dad was a, a lawyer who wrote laws to protect the working people. And he grew up in an orphanage in East LA, you know, so, so I think that like, I come from a kind of a line of social justice warriors in a way. Um, and then when I went to school at Santa Cruz and I actually studied community activism and sort of learned how power works in society and how to wield the power that I had in order to not only, you know, achieve equity for myself and my community, but also for those who had even less to work with. You know, I learned that even when you're working to benefit yourself, there are others who need your help as well. You know, like it's a two-way, it's a two-way street. You can pull yourself forward, but you got to bring the folks who are beneath you or behind you up to your level. And so, you know, I got really involved in immigrant rights. And a big part of that was because I was doing all this research in Mexico and then on seeing the, um, the, inequity of me as a white American woman being able to travel back and forth across this border that other people weren't allowed to cross. And so that's always been a really important issue for me. Also, I really, you know, of course, care about the environment, but but more so the ways that environmental justice asks us to look at the exploitation of natural resources and the ways they affect indigenous communities and communities of color who are mostly, you know, systematically impoverished. So seeing how, and I'm really into just border crossing in general, right? Like seeing how this issue affects that issue. You know, the word that gets thrown around a lot nowadays is intersectionality, which is a great word to think about when you think about like how we all occupy multiple identities. But I like to think about how all of these social movements are really intertwined. So, you know, I march for justice for Black trans women who are, you know, um, disproportionately affected by anti-trans violence. And, um, and, I, and I also try to advocate for representation for people with disabilities in our industry, because as much as I've been out here advocating for trans representation, I've seen and, and heard from my disabled colleagues that um, they're facing a lot of the same issues from a different point of view. And so why can't we shift the game for both of us, you know? So those are some of the things that I feel like outside of my own like self-advocacy that I am really trying to push for. It's I really I, you. I love how, again, watch. going back to collaboration, you're so... I love that. So encompassing and welcoming and just really about community. That's such a beautiful quality. I, I just I'm so in awe of everything you're doing, Shakina. It's awesome. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, it's like, you know, I just feel like I'm 
playing my part, you know? And it's like when you were in that intro to acting class or intro to modern dance class and you're all walking around the room trying to fill the empty space, you know? Don't crash into anyone, but like fill the empty space. <laughs> and like, that's what it feels like. I'm like living my life and I see like, wait a minute, no one's doing something right here where something needs to be done. So can I step in or can I help uh, allocate resources or bring attention to, you know, because that's one big thing about like being a multi-hyphenate or caring about a lot of things is that like you you actually can't invest in everything equally. Like you actually can't do it all, but you can figure out how to marshal your own resources, whether that's financial or, or just your energy to, to contribute to all these different arenas. And then you sort of judge for yourself, you know, like what makes sense for you, given your bandwidth, given your income, given your economic status or whatever, and your mental health, you know, how much can you afford to give in any of these directions and be open to that shifting because your, your passions and your interest and the necessity for your involvement will change. And you got to be open to shifting lanes when you need to. Yeah, Tina and I talk about that all the time, that you cannot mm-hmm. do every single thing you're interested in, every single part of your career every day. There are years when you're focusing more on one thing and years when you're focusing more on another. So I feel like you have a superpower and that is execution because a lot of people have a lot of, I know a lot of people have a million great ideas. People have great ideas, but not everyone gets to the execution part. And I want to know like in a really micro way, how you just make something happen because you do, you have an idea and you figure out how to actually truly make it happen. Well, gosh, how, how do I do that? I think (laughs) it's, I'm saying it's your superpower. You might not even know. It's just part of who you are. I mean, I'll tell you a story. I remember driving with my dad by this like corner by his house that was like a lot for the longest time. It was a lot for the longest time. And then one day there was a sports bar there. And my dad said, I always wanted to build a sports bar there. Like I knew it would be great. And I said, well, why, why didn't you? And he said, well, I'm an idea man. And I was like, oh, no. Like, I never want to be an idea woman. Like, I want to be a maker. Like, I, what good is an idea if you're just going to get disappointed in seeing someone else achieve it, you know? And I was really young, but I remember that that was an iconic moment for me of just being like, I know what I don't want. And what I don't want is that, you know? And so, um, yeah, I just, and also because I think that when I was younger and I had dropped out of so many schools, I felt at the time really a lot of internalized shame about that. Like, I felt like I had something to prove, you know, that I could finish something, that I could accomplish something. So I kind of got my experience, like, under my belt, you know, overachieving in college when I was, like, producing, you know, my own theater and stuff like that. But on a microwave, I think... I think what I do is I, um, listen, I was trained in by the Midwest Academy for Community Organizing and Strategic Planning. So there is a, like, there is a rubric to follow. You know, you have to say, like, identify the solution to the problem. Identify, like, what it is that's missing that you want to do or what that's, what's needed that you want to be making. And then you ask yourself, who has the power to get me what I want? Can it, is it something I can do on my on my own or do I need other people to help make it happen? And then you seek out ways to connect with those people, whether it's like inviting friends to help you build a theater in the back of the game porn studio or reaching out to a, you know, a, a producer or uh, an, a high profile artist in your industry and asking them for advice or mentorship. And then, you know, sort of charting your own course by creating meaningful, attainable goals that build toward your ultimate quest. 
And it could be really simple. It could be like, I need to make sure I'm out of bed by a certain hour every morning because right now my life is in disarray. And it's like, I just need to get up. And like, great, that's a goal. Set that goal and start achieving it. You know, or it could be a bigger thing. Like I want to self-produce my own series. Um, so I need to like brainstorm, you know, what the content's going to be and who my content creator are going to be that I partner with and and start that process of reaching out. But I think a lot of times we get these ideas and, uh, and this happens to me all the time we get overwhelmed and frozen by their magnitude and it's so hard to see a big idea it's actually a combination of a lot of little ideas you know it's just like a lot of little bricks that build the wall and so you know the best thing you can do when you get like intimidated by the big goal is step back and think like okay well what are all the little goals that will get me there and can I just start with the first couple and see what happens and be open to you know things as they change I feel like that was just a mini version on how to organize your life as an artist. I like a full class. You just gave so many tangible Yes. Tips. It's like, I hope everyone listening is taking notes. I want to go back and listen and take some notes. Me that too. Incredible. <laughs> well, I got to say like, this is, I mean, this is the process that I am like in the midst of. It's not like I'm sitting here as some expert and I appreciate you saying I have this executive superpower, but like, you know, day to day, including this morning before our call, like I was, you know, willing myself through, you know, my own resistances to getting the next draft written of my pitch deck. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. it's the same thing all the time, but I think you do get better at it when you practice it regularly, when you've achieved a few wins. So you know, like what that satisfaction feels like. And when you have done it enough to where you can really trust the payoff of the process, you know, self-discipline yeah, is really hard when there are no rewards, but like when you actually taste it, then you get hungrier for it. Yeah. And I think that's very valuable because I think that a lot of people look at successful people and think, oh, well, they don't have anxiety. They don't have trouble getting up and in, in out of bed in the morning. And to, to just hear you acknowledge, I have to will myself through my resistance or whatever you're going through that, that yes, you have that and you kind of push yourself through. I think that's yeah. very valuable for people to hear. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, um, I have struggled and suffered with anxiety and depression for most of my life, you know, from the like traumatic experiences of my youth. And, and I have to sort of like, make friends with my own worst enemies in, in that regard, you know, like what I talked about earlier, like the self saboteur and stuff like that, like, like, I have to be really compassionate with her and just be like, yeah, girl, I hear you. And like, you know, it's like that drunk friend that you're like, I'm gonna hold your <laughs> hair back while you puke. And we don't have to talk about this tomorrow. But I'm like, honestly, you're, you're really trying my last nerve, you know, and it's like, when you can sort of like, see the shadow parts of yourself, um, as like still worthy of love and still listen to them, but like not let them dominate the conversation, you know? Exactly. Oh. Exactly. I love that. That that really resonates with me. That like becoming friends with your your shadow self. Like as our so as our listeners know, I am like single as a Pringle and just you know the single gal about town, just really looking for love. I'm just like you know the low budget Carrie Bradshaw. And you've mentioned your boyfriend Daniel a few times, and I yeah. I want to know the tea on Daniel. How did you guys meet? What was it like quarantining yeah. together? How long have you been together? Just dish it out because I need to know. Sure. So um, this is fun. So Daniel and I met on Tinder five years ago. Um, we just had our five-year anniversary in January. We met, it was like, you know, um, it was actually kind of funny because back then Tinder didn't have like 
I don't even know what they have now because it's been a long time since I've been on there, but they, they didn't have like um, anti-discrimination policies for trans people. So it was really easy for homophobic cis men to get you kicked off the app if they just sort of reported you for being trans. Oh my um, God. Which, they would like swipe on you, but then when they found out you were trans, they would report you. So, um, <sighs> so I got like kicked off for being trans. And then when I got back on, I had like a message from him. And, um, and I was like, oh no but he was really handsome and he said really sweet things in the message. And I was like, yeah, let's like go on a date. So we went on like two dates. Uh, well, it was while I was in San Diego visiting my family. And then I had to come back to New York and, and Musical Theater Factory was sort of like falling apart. We were leaving the space that we were founded in and we didn't know what was gonna happen next. And everything was sort of in disarray. And I was like finding myself very emotional over this fling that I had, you know? And it was not just, it was really special. We had like really deep talks and it was like, they were like two perfect dates and some really great intimacy. Um, and then I was like, you know, on the other side of the country. And then I just, he just sent me a text that said, and I was like, ah, oh, he's thinking about me. And like that ah. really like gave me a, a big wind of, of like energy, you know, and we kept in touch. And I next time I came out to L.A. for a job, we like met up for a weekend. And then he came out to New York for his birthday that year. And so we and then we decided that we were going to um, try and do like an exclusive long distance thing, which we did for about a year after that. And then when we had been together for a year and a half, we decided to move in together. And he came out here uh, with Luna, who's our dog, um, with his dog at the time. And I moved to Jersey. I got us a house in Jersey because I didn't know, I couldn't afford an apartment for two humans and a dog in New York City. So right. I ended up like getting a place in Jersey and I was like, come on out, babe. And we lived there for another 18 months uh, until we like saved up enough money to move back to the city. And so he, uh, his life experience was such that he never went to school uh, after high school and he was just working in sales and, and, um, you know, living that like hustle. And so recently he decided to go back to school actually right before COVID happened. So he like got into this program um, at the city college of New York, which is like two blocks from where we live. And we were like, this is going to be perfect. Like you're going to go to school. I'm going to be here. It's going to be great. And then like quarantine happened and he went from having like one week of a college experience to like at home learning, which we all know is terrible. Mm -hmm. um, meanwhile, like, you know, the initial trauma of the shutdown was so crazy, but he has a really great knack for survival. Like he just, he's one of those people that you can depend on to like see the, the like smart and safe way out of any situation. And partially that's because he like had a really hard life growing up and like, just like me, like that shaped his survival instinct. But we both made a vow at the beginning of quarantine that I said to him, I said, you know what, there are in every like great historical moment, like the one we're about to live through, there are people who come out of it on top and they rise above because they are innovative, they are strategic and they don't give up. And, and I said, we are going to be those people. Like, we are not going to let this bring us down. And, and so the first few months were like really brutal to try and keep that level of confidence when we had no idea what was going on. We started organizing and, and, and um, helping to create protest marches and vigils and events uh, in support of Black Lives Matter and Black trans lives, which really gave us something to think about outside of ourselves and to be of service, which was really helpful. And then when I booked Connecting and he, you know, became a de facto collaborator in the creation of that show 
show, it was really like a lifesaver because it gave us something tangible to work on. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the same time, his passion project has been building a greenhouse in our backyard. We're very lucky enough to have like a patch of land behind our apartment in Harlem. And he's like building an aeroponic garden, which is like part of the academic stuff that he's uh, studying and for environmental engineering. But we, I think that what got us through is like one uh, a commitment to self-growth I think that was something that we shared on our very first date that was like oh this is really hot that we both really believe in becoming our best selves and then two like supporting each other in our own projects and and having our own projects like stuff that's mine that's not his stuff that's his it's not mine but but we're there ride or die to like make sure it gets done to hold each other accountable to push each other when we feel like giving up um and then like uh, we have some really great sexual chemistry which is like you know you can't argue with that so just all those things are really helpful we just did a covid classic new york city outside under a heat lamp lunch (laughs) with the two of you and just the mutual, the love and respect that you two have for each other and for his his pursuits going back to school and how he just respects and supports your career so much and you're so happy for each other. It's just, it's re- it was really beautiful to see, I have That's to say. That's awesome. I thank you. I mean, we, it's like, it sounds silly, but we both said really early on, like, we want to have power couple energy. Like, we want to be the kind of people that, like, are in a relationship that inspires other people like we want like it's not enough that we love each other and that we and that we love ourselves which are two you know the foundation but we want to have the kind of love that like reverberates outward and affects people that we encounter in a positive way and um and we just so we we work on that because that's also not just a given it's not like you see like these instagram couples it's hard work and there are challenges and there are you know failures and pitfalls and it's about you know reminding yourself that you're on the same team and you're and there's we we like to say um there's only one fight going on whenever we have a difficulty there's only one fight going on and that's the fight honestly between good and evil and the and like if the devil wants to get in the way of the love we're bringing we're not gonna let that happen oh i love this well my standards and my expectations of a healthy relationship have just skyrocketed so i'm hoping to find my very own daniel (laughs) i would love a greenhouse in my my non-existent backyard um that sounds like an absolute (laughs) dream (laughs) that's awesome i love that shakina that's great um okay shakina i want to know who you are a fangirl for. Like who, if yes. they walked in right now, would you be crying? Your, I want yes. your autograph. Like freaking out nervous because you just love them so much. Who inspires wow. you that much? There's probably a lot of people. Um, it, the, it's funny because the first thing you said when you said, who am I a fangirl for? I was like, Jordan Knight. Because I still have like a new kids on the block. You know, there's still a soft spot. Yes. So um, <laughs> I, I think like I would, um, I, I just sometimes feel like what would I, because I'm sure at some point like, will cross paths or meet now that I'm actually like circulating amongst the celebutants, you know? Sure. Um, so I, I think about that, but no, but really, um, I would, I would love, love, love to meet Carol Burnett and oh. like, and, and here's why this is a, a, I'll try to tell the story fast, but, um, my hero in my life, uh, you know, aside from like everyone is, is my, my grandmother. She was like my spiritual sister, I'm sure that we've been together in multiple past lives. Like she was my rock and, you know, um, and I miss her terribly. She's been gone for like 12 plus years, but I think about her all the time. Um, When my aunt was in college, she went to UCLA and she was like creating musical reviews. Uh, Carol Burnett came to see one of her reviews 
and told my aunt, like, I want you to make a review for me and put me in it. And so my aunt created uh, a, I think it was a Cole Porter review that for Carol Burnett. And Carol Burnett, uh, like, you know, did this amazing review in Westwood. And it was like really a great experience for everybody. And Carol Burnett and my grandma like hit it off. And um, they weren't like long-term friends, but they like, you know, she just loved her because everyone loved my grandma. To the point that like flash forward into gosh, this was probably like the late 90s. There was like a concert at the Hollywood Bowl. I was not here for this, but I hold on to the story like it was my own. Um, There's a concert at the Hollywood Bowl and my grandma and my papa were there and my aunt and, and her husband. And they were like in their little sort of like box area on the side seating. And um, my grandma had this like very infectious laugh and who knows what was happening, but they were laughing. And from behind them was this voice, Cheryl? Is that you? And it was Carol Burnett like calling out my grandma at the Hollywood Bowl. And um and so aside from Carol Burnett being this icon of of comedy and one of the boldest and bravest women in entertainment, she also loved my grandma. And so I just would love to like meet Carol Burnett and like talk about my grandma. That would be oh, my I, have I not how did I not know that story? <laughs> what an answer. Yeah, I, don't know. I mean I I was not expecting that beautiful gem of a story. I mean, what? Shakina. Oh, I love Okay, so for all our listeners, if anyone has a connection to Carol Burnett, let's make some dreams come true, okay? Right, exactly. (laughs) I love that. I Um, love that. Okay, what do you think is the best advice you've ever gotten? Oh, good one, good one. At every great moment in your life, you have to face the fear that you're going to be exposed as a fraud. (sighs) Whew. That was from my um, dramatic theories professor in when I was like 20 years old and applying to graduate school. And I had an interview for the MFA in directing at Columbia University with Ann Bogart, uh, which I didn't get accepted to, by the way, it's fine. But um, I was like in his office, his name is Peter Moskov. He was just such a dream. And I was talking to him about like, you know, who am I to go pursue these things? Like I'm a high school dropout and I'm like, you know, not even brave enough to start transitioning yet. And I'll never forget. He said at every great moment in your life, you're going to have to face the fear that you'll be exposed as a fraud. That gave me goosebumps both times you just said that. That, I mean, that's, that hits deep. Hits really deep. But what's so great is that, yeah, when you, when you feel the imposter syndrome coming on, you know, you're on the right track. Okay, well, that's really encouraging. (laughs) It's very encouraging. Right? Because that means we're all on the right track like every fucking day. (laughs) That means we're all doing great. (laughs) Right. Oh, that hits so close to home right now. I can't even That's tell amazing. you. I want to like I'm put that so on a giant that. board in my house or like, <laughs> put on my fridge or Me something. Too. Oh, I love that. So do I. Okay, so um, Shakina, what are your like, what's your go, what are what are the products, the two products? You had to pick two, Desert Island products that you can't live without or like a TV show or something, something just like really joyful that's not necessary to survive, but like you can't live without personally. What What is that for you? Um. Okay. The two products that I cannot live without are probably earplugs and an eye mask <laughs> because I like I'm a terrible sleeper and um, and I've learned like just being able to isolate is actually like so important, you know, being able to like really detach. So like like finding the, the ability to like have true silence and true darkness is like the only way I can I can really recharge mm-hmm. that and Shay's eye butter I just I need eye butter oh I wait what is it it's Shay's eye butter yeah just like 
underneath, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, excellent answer. Excellent answer. <laughs> um, what are you most excited to work on for 2021? For 2021, I have a few projects in development that I'm excited about. Two of them are like TV shows that are autobiographical in nature. Uh, and and I'm excited to like get those out of me and hopefully get them sold so that I can just be making them. But the project that I'm most excited about is I am co-writing a Lifetime movie. And <gasps> it is a, it's a story um, about, inspired by my friend and collaborator, uh, Tyler O'Neill. Inspired by her story, it's a the story of a Black trans woman coming home to her church family. And and we are writing a gospel film for Lifetime that's going to be executive produced by Larissa Jones, who created the Five Heartbeats and the Finding Temptations and the recently um, like nominated uh, Clark Sisters movie for Lifetime. So I'm just really excited to tell that story that we're still creating and to like be on set with these the, the kind of cast that we've assembled, which is going to have this like you know these incredible um, like transgender uh, gospel singers, and I just I think it's going to be so magical and going to be so groundbreaking for that network. Wow, that sounds incredible! I'm a huge Lifetime fan, and that story just sounds absolutely wonderful. I can't wait! I can't wait! I'm so excited for you. Yeah, it's going to be delicious. It's going to be delicious. Like we we already have like the first draft of the script and. Um, and there's all these like musical moments that like we're going to be reaching out to, you know, like incredible artists to, you know, create compositions for the movie. And uh, it's it's going to be wonderful, I'm sure. Oh, I'm certain I mean, of it. I have so to say, Shakina, you are such an incredible storyteller just in how we're speaking today. Such an incredible storyteller. I aspire to your level of articulation. Like your the way you speak and the way you tell stories is so powerful and moving. I I can only imagine what your writing is like. So I mean, I can't wait for this lifetime well, to come out because uh, I'm sure it's just gonna be fabulous. There there so far there are like some winning moments and there's a lot of trash. But like that's how it has to start. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, that's how it goes. goes. Yeah, you weed through it and then you you keep building. Shakina, thank you so much for being here, for being our first special guest, for being so honest, so open. You gave so many incredible just words of advice. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Can you tell us where we can find you? So we're watching Connecting on Peacock and Hulu. And then where can we find you on social media? I'm Shakin everywhere. S-H-A-K-E-E-N-Z. I'm most active on Instagram and Twitter. Um, I have a TikTok I've never used, but I will spy on you. And um, <laughs> I have a Facebook, but we should all be leaving Facebook. But Shakin's is the place you can find me. My website is shakina.nyc, but who goes to websites anymore? Um, and and also Difficult People is still on Hulu if you, you know, want to help me yes. get that residual check. Yeah. Oh, and we do. Perfect. We do. Yes. <laughs> we definitely do. Shakina, yeah. you're a dream. Thank Thank you so You're much. Dreams. Thank you, Alex. We're Thank you, so. Shakina. It's been such a joy to spend oh. time with you. We're obsessed <laughs> with you, Shakina. We're just obsessed. Absolutely obsessed. Likewise obsessed. <laughs> All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Yay. Yay. Okay. Oh, my God. That was so fun. Don't forget to like, download, and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out the live show on Instagram at Obsessed with the Best Pod on Thursday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Hosted on dimlywit.com.